Good evening. I can't get better than he got at the start. That's, that's sad. Uh, it's good to see everybody out tonight. Uh, earlier this month, I presented a lesson called uh, Thought Detox, where I kind of cast a really wide net at this fear that I have that the psychology, the philosophy, the mind, if you will, of the modern world has infiltrated the thoughts of everyday Christians like you and me. Uh, we noted that there's been a massive shift that's occurring in our culture at large, and we see that churches really of all stripes, no matter what kind of church you're looking at, find themselves with empty pews as the majority of Americans at this point no longer identify as members of any religious body of any sort. And even among those who faithfully attend a church within the realm of Christendom, uh, of those 66% of youth between the ages 18 and 22 will quit attending church. They are, have already been dropping out, and that number is likely to grow. Uh, this is disturbing in isolation as it is, but we know that they're just symptoms of really a bigger problem. Now, to, to address this problem is really a multifaceted kind of thing, and it's complex because it crosses over into all kinds of subjects, whether it be education, philosophy, psychology, politics, and all kinds of other things. But what I think it ultimately comes down to, as we've said, is the fact that people around us and people even within the church have worldly minds, minds that are given over to a way of thinking that's directly opposed to the teaching of God. Now, we know that aspects of this problem are not new. Uh, Solomon really said it well when he said there's nothing new under the sun, nothing truly new that happens. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we can see how God has always called his people out of sinful, rebellious cultures. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We see here the dangers of a culture that creates people with futile minds, darkened understandings, and hard hearts that are addicted to impurity. They are willing to, to fall into any kind of sin. They're, they're hungry for it. And Paul might even call these people, tongue-in-cheek, the walking dead, right? Because these people live and they work among us. But at the same time, they are cut off from the life of God, that true life, the true source of life. But God in his grace has offered a cure to these problems. And we've talked about it, a mind that's renewed by Jesus Christ, which leads to a transformation not just of the mind, but a transformation of the whole life. That's what we're looking for, a whole life transformation. And it's in that thought idea there, if you will, that I fear we in the church are at most danger of missing it. I worry that we are, of all people, maybe in the most danger of missing that whole life idea. And let me explain why I believe that that is. As members of the church, we are dedicated to following and respecting the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want all that we do to be done in his name and under his authority. We, we are steadfast in doing our level best to reflect that in our worship practices. And so we want to make sure that whatever we do to worship God, that we follow his word in offering that worship to him. And that's really one of our major distinguishing 
features, if you will, when you compare us to the religious world at large. But that desire for precision, which is right and good, can really sometimes lead to compartmentalizing the worship hour, right? This is the most important hour, the corporate worship. It's really the most important thing to get right. And as long as we get that right, then everything else kind of takes care of itself. When this happens, in turn, we can actually take the whole of our life outside of these walls and put it into a category that I would just call a secular life mindset, Right? We have this mindset that everything outside of here, the time that we spend, that's just our secular life. And of course, we believe that we need to obey God during our secular lives, during the day-to-day things. But we, that generally just comes in our minds to avoiding sin. Right? We know God has said not to do certain things. And so as long as we avoid those, we avoid stealing and lying and committing adultery and murder with a few others, then that's really what we have to watch out for during our secular life. So don't commit the major sins. Get the worship hour right in your spiritual life, and that kind of settles it. But what we do when we do this is we kind of create these two boxes, if you will. On one side, you have your religious life, and on the other side, you have your secular life. And in some respects, this is an attractive setup, right? Because in a way, it kind of keeps that which is holy set apart from the drudgery of everyday life, right? We have our jobs, we have our hobbies, our us time, as we would think of it, and we say, well, that's kind of one thing, uh, and our religious life tends to be a separate thing. But there are two problems with that. One is that the text of the Bible, especially the New Testament in particular, spends a lot of ink talking about the humble, down-to-earth, normal, everyday life that we live every day. Uh, Look in Romans chapter 12. Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all." What we see in these verses is that God is interested in every aspect of our day-to-day life when it comes to our small interactions with others, the relationships that we have with our friends and even with our foes, if we want to call them that, our times of celebration and our times of mourning. We, you know, when we come here and we hear the announcement, so much sadness that we hear, we God cares about that. He cares about the way that we feel. He cares about the things that we're going through. The, The entirety of our lives are an exercise in living by the will of God, whether it's, again, in this building or outside of this building. The second problem that we have with this hardline religious life, secular life split is that for the majority of us, if not all of us, our mind spends most of its time in the secular mindset. This is where we live and operate most of the time. And because of that, the secular sphere is where our minds can be changed and conformed to a worldly standard without us even realizing it. Look at what Paul notes in Colossians chapter 2. We talked about it last time, but he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The voices of the world at large, they don't stand behind pulpits, they don't seem like preachers, and yet they're constantly preaching a message about the meaning of this world, what it means, what what the truth of the matter is about what's important, about what's real. 
And it's in this sector, the secular sector, that minds are changed. And then that thinking is brought into your spiritual life as a foundational assumption, right? You're bringing what you learn in the secular and you're bringing it to the table in your spiritual life. Now, there's a lot of examples that we could look at using this model that I've talked about and the issues with it. But tonight, I want to touch on perhaps what is the most foundational controversy at the current cultural moment. I think it's the bedrock controversy. We could say that the touchstone issue of the day is abortion and reproductive rights and politics. Brother John had a great lesson on that this morning. Or we could say that maybe it's homosexuality and transgenderism, that's the, the, the topic of the moment, or cancel culture and freedom of speech. Brother Eric had a lesson on that during our seminar. But at the basis of all of these different conversations is some shade of the same subject. And I believe that subject is the role and rights of women. Now you'll know that I'm extremely brave standing up here with that on the screen behind me because it turns out I'm not a woman. My wife's a woman, and some of my best friends are women, but I am not a woman. But I think that this is really, again, the base-level controversy. And all these other things, every debate in the halls of academia, uh, to the floors of our legislative bodies, all of these conversations are wrapped up in questions of gender and sex. It all goes back to that in some way. And because of that, it's important for us in the church who are constantly bombarded with this, whose children are constantly bombarded with us to, one, understand it, and true to draw conclusions about it and the fruits of what's being said. So let's approach this debate in a couple of ways. First, I want to approach it from the spiritual side of life. And then I want to address the secular ideas on this topic of gender in the modern age. Uh, among religious people in the larger religious and I would say Christian world, you're going to see two broad positions regarding the role of men and women. And these are two very long words. On one hand, you have egalitarianism. And on the other hand, you have complementarianism. That's just an impressive word. As I typed it, I kept having to make the font smaller. Complementarianism. The egalitarian position states that God created men and women equal. That sounds good so far, right? Thus, because God created men and women equal, men and women have equal rights to positions of leadership and authority in all sectors, including church leadership in office and in worship, right? And so you see pictures like this. Egalitarians would note that God has given women the ability to preach, and thus he must intend for them to use that role publicly. And so several liberal denominations uh, have, have fully ordained female clergy or priests or pastors, whatever they want to call it. Uh, others appoint female elders and deacons and other positions of authority. That would be the egalitarian position. On the other hand, complementarianism holds that God created men and women equal. It kind of sits in the same spot, right? But there's a large but that we have to put right in the middle because the complementarian position would be that within this equality, men and women have different and complementary roles, right? Equality, but different roles. They would also claim that women's roles exclude spiritual leadership or authority over men. Now, this doesn't mean that women are excluded from spiritual practice or growth or that they have no place in the church proper. Instead, complementarians would hold that women play an important role in teaching, 
in evangelism and charity and caretaking, benevolence, hospitality, child rearing, all of these things that are acts that the church needs desperately, women play a large part in. Now, egalitarian or complementarian, those are just man-made titles and that's neither here nor there. We want to be biblical, right? We want to say what the Bible says and do what the Bible says that we ought to do so that we're in line with God's word. And in God's word, we would find passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Or what about 1 Corinthians 14? As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, as I read these verses, you should realize that in some places, just speaking these words out loud would have you spit upon and have teeth gnashed at you, right? This is pretty subversive by today's standards. But the Bible makes some pretty simple statements here. Now, again, we could study it in more depth, and there's things that we would want to parse out as far as uh, women aren't to be totally silent. Women can sing. Uh, they can take part in various things. But again, the, the base principle there is very simple. Now, it might be thought of as old-fashioned or as sexist or chauvinistic, but these statements are in the Bible, and we can't get around them. And thus, we, found our, we find ourselves bound to keep them. And so that's why here at Center Grove in the worship assembly, you will not see a female song leader. You will not hear a sermon given by a female preacher. We don't do that because we believe that God has not authorized it. And that's not because we think that women are less than men in any way. That's not what we hold or believe, but rather we believe that the roles that God has given women are not those roles. It's a different role in the order of the church. And I believe that everyone here has some basic grasp of that as we understand it in this context. But again, that really only addresses what happens here on church grounds during our worship services. Because what about outside those back doors? When we go out into the world, and we ask about the question of gender roles and all of this, uh, what does it look like? Well, we all know it looks very, very different from anything that we would see in here. In the first place, we need to understand the definitions of two words when it comes to how the world views the difference between men and women. And those are the words sex and gender. Now, for most of you, if we're having this conversation, and I put these two words up here, you assume that those words are synonyms, right? Sex and gender are the same thing. They just describe the binary reality of the two different types of people, male and female. But we know that in our current cultural milieu that this has been very confused and hotly contested. But what may surprise you to know is one of these terms in particular is historically speaking very, very recent in this conversation. A uh, psychologist by the name of John Money is the man that actually introduced the word gender to describe the identity of humans in a sexual way. And he did that in 1955. That's not that long ago. I mean, now gender is thrown around again as a synonym for this, but yet this was actually new in the year 1955, and he uh, used it in his paper, an examination of some basic sexual concepts, the evidence of human hermaphroditism. Uh, that's a hard word for me to say. I don't even like saying it. Money, for your information, 
established the Johns Hopkins Gender Identity Clinic in 1965, so he's kind of ahead of the curve. This was the first clinic in the United States to perform sexual reassignment surgeries on adults and infants. John Money recommended and oversaw the sex change of a 22-month-old male infant and offered therapy sessions to that boy and his brother for several years thereafter, which included making the siblings emulate intimate situations with each other, full-body inspections, and nude photography. I tell you this just to tell you what kind of person John Money was. Money introduced the term gender as a way to differentiate between biological sex, which was obvious to anyone at birth, you're one of the two sexes, but he said there's a difference between that and gender, because he said that gender is simply the role that a person plays as society kind of makes them do that. If society considers you to be a male, society will have your gender be male and you'll play out that role. If you're female, it'll have you play that role. So in other words, maleness and femaleness or masculinity and femininity, as historically understood, were just social constructs, right? Things that humans have made up, that culture and nurture had cast upon people of both sexes, but in reality, and in money's mind, should be this way, it should be distinct from sex and should be fluid to the individual's desires. So what's the bottom line here? In his mind, the bottom line is there's no functional difference between male and female, right? Sure, there's a difference of sex, but as far as gender goes and identity goes and roles go, those are just blank slates that we paint on in whatever way that we want to functionally or psychologically. Any performative differences between the two are just determined by those who hold cultural and societal power. The introduction of this idea really demands two observations from us. First is that historically, men and women have been thought to have certain roles and traits. It was just understood that men were one way and women were another way. And this has been the way it has been for years and years. But at the same time, secondly, we have to note that culture has shifted and affected and changed in some way these roles and traits between men and women. In the course of time, as we think about this, what has traditionally been the view of men, right? Well, men have been viewed as protectors and providers. Men have been, uh, you know, thought of as people defined by strength and courage in a lot of circumstances, while women have been thought of as nurturers, caretakers, and keepers of the home and family. And some of the defining characteristics of them might be gentleness or humility. These are things that have been tied, again, historically to the two sexes. Now, roles and traits are variable, right? There are some differences. We're all different in some ways. There aren't any absolutes, always at least, there are exceptions and there are crossovers between the attributes of men and women as they exhibit these traits. But again, in the general sense, this has been the understanding of history regarding gender roles. And in fact, things have stayed the same until remarkably close to our current time. In, in fact, just a little over 100 years ago, we saw the same pattern holding as regarded work roles in society. This is written by Janet Yellen on Brookings.com. It's an essay on the history of women and work. 
said in the, early, in the early 20th century, most women in the United States did not work outside the home, and those who did were primarily young and unmarried. In that era, just 20% of all women were gainful workers, as the Census Bureau then categorized labor force participation outside the home, and only 5% of those married were categorized as such. Of course, this does not imply that women did not work historically. We all know that is not the case. Of course they did. Women have always worked. In the days of the New Testament even, we can read about Priscilla that helped her husband Aquila in their tent-making business. Lydia, who was a Thyatiran convert, uh, she was a seller of purple, and uh, we, we get to read about her conversion. Women have always been hard workers. Read Proverbs 31 and the depiction of the virtuous woman, right? All that she does for her household, all of the things that she does to make sure that her family is taken care of as she functions in day-to-day life. But even then we understand historically that the prime focus of the woman's work was the affairs and well-being of her household. Of course, there were jobs outside of the home that were traditionally filled by women, and again, there pretty much always have been, particularly unmarried ones, but if they married, they almost always ended up resigning that position and began their life as a homemaker. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring it up simply to say that things have changed, right? Things aren't the same as they used to be, and no matter what we view on a subject, we should note when something has changed historically. Well, what did change this trend? Well, really, it was two things. It was technology and war, right? As technology increased and the industrial industry created more jobs, modern jobs, sometimes factory jobs, women began filling those positions, often for less pay than men, sometimes not as easily hired, but women would fill in some of these positions. But this change really hit its stride during the First and Second World Wars, right? Because we know that men were conscripted to go to the home, the, or, sorry, the front, the battlefront, and so women stayed on the home front, right? And they worked in factories and shipyards. They produced ammo and supplies. And really, the role of women during this part of the war was crucial to the effort, right? They really stepped up and fulfilled a lot of these positions that need to be done while the men were away at war. And because of that, things were beginning to shift in the public consciousness about women's place in the workforce and in society as a whole. But with this shift came a dynamic movement that would really drive the conversation about women's rights until this very day. And of course, I'm talking about feminism, right? Feminism, which is, again, a word that's probably familiar to most of us, the feminist movement, as we see feminist advocates uh, and spokespeople uh, that kind of stand at various platforms today and talk about this issue. Feminism in its history is really, uh, again, kind of complex. There's a lot of different things at play here. You have movements in the 1800s that were called the first wave of feminism, and this was, again, to grant women the right to vote, the right to education, uh, or even the right to things like land ownership and holding a bank account, right? And these movements were aimed at giving women equal political and societal standing to men. And hopefully, unsurprisingly, I think that all these changes were good and right, okay? These were things that brought women and gave them rights in society that were equal to men, But it's when you come to the early 1960s and the second wave of feminism that things take a very, very dark turn. This flavor of feminism that arose at this time decried the fact that women were forced into specific gender roles, 
forced to be keepers of the home and forced to be sexually chaste because of the burdens of pregnancy. And thus came the demand for freedom from the chains that history and society and religion had put on women. All these things were oppressive and they had to be thrown off. The fuel propelling this wagon in in certain terms were innovations like the introduction of the contraceptive pill, the sexual revolution of the 60s, and access to so-called, as you see on the sign there, safe, legal abortions. And again, Brother John uh, covered that in more detail this morning than I can tonight. The pressure on women in society was to jump on the bandwagon and support the feminist movement or else be labeled a traitor to their sex. You have journalist and activist Gloria Steinem, and she gave this famous quote, women have two choices, either she's a feminist or she's a masochist, right? Either you join the feminist cause or you must hate yourself and hate women in general. So what does feminism look like today as we think about this? Well, we've w- worked through the third wave of womenism, uh, womenism. <laughs> the third wave, it could be called that, the third wave of feminism in the 2000s, okay? And this focused on sexual empowerment, uh, the right to public displays of lust and eroticism, and maybe most specifically, women's individual choice and subjective experience, right? My body, my choice, I get to decide what happens with me because that is the standard at this point by which all the world must conduct its affairs and bend the knee right to the desires of the individual third wave with feminism also adopted this marxist style outlook on the relation between men and women with men no longer being an equal that women wanted to stand alongside but rather that men were oppressors right They're oppressors that are guilty of holding women down, and thus they must be taken down a peg. And these things have, of course, also been tied into matters of race, uh, matters of all these other things. And so that today, again, we see that feminism is also expanded to include things like uh, homosexuality and transgenderism, which, as we would note there, transgenderism concerns men who call themselves women being welcomed into the fold, if you will, of feminism as long as they are willing to become female gender themselves. Now, you say, I understand what you're saying, but this represents the most radicalized proponents of social change for women, right? These are the crazies, if you will, that are talking about this kind of radical change for women. And I would agree with you that these uh, standards and these thoughts are not held by every average person on the street, but the general consensus may still shock you. The Pew Research Center and this was about five years ago now, they put out a a survey result that they had on gender differences, no consensus on nature versus nurture. So when they asked thousands of Americans to kind of define the difference between men and women, they had broad agreement uh, out of five categories on these four that men and women were functionally different in physical ability, in expression of feelings, in hobbies and interests, and in approaches to parenting. The majority of people said, yes, men and women are different when it comes to these things. But what's fascinating is when they asked these people where the differences came from, the majority said that barring physical activity, and it was closer than you would think on that, that traits were based on societal expectation, not biology. And within the male-female split, a larger majority of females believe that these gendered ideas were simply the opinions of our day and thus 
can be changed. So any differences between men and women, they say, are simply things that society has said and things that we have the right and ability to change. As we look at the gospel of female empowerment, and again, like I said, it's a complex thing. Along the way, women have gained rights that they should have had from the beginning. And in other ways, when we look at the female empowerment movement, we see 80 years of bad, bad fruit. Is it presumptuous to follow in the steps of Jesus and kind of examine the tree to look at the fruit that it's produced and see what comes of it? What has it produced in the last 80 years? It's produced generation after generation of sexual promiscuity, of rampant abortion, dissolution of families, extended adolescence, delays of marriage and childbearing, political upheaval, lost children, and violent disgust, disgust for the traditional, wholesome, and biblical And the fact of the matter is the people that are the radicals are infecting the day-to-day person on the street, but they won't be happy until they have who? Your kids. That's who they want. That's who they want to preach to. That's who they want to teach. And they're doing it through television. They're doing it at the movies and music, in grade, middle, and high school, in college, on social media, in the workplace. They are teaching them that to be enlightened, to be just, to be even a moral person, they must fall in line with the modern feminist standard of the view of women versus men. What does the Bible say? Again, that's what's really important to us In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Bible knows no standard besides the binary between men and women. It was there from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. We see that from the very beginning, God created not just two sexes, but he actually created different roles for each of the sexes. His his created intent for Eve was for her to be a helper to Adam. Again, equal in dignity, equal in worth, but different in purpose and function. And this difference did not make Adam despise or oppress his wife, but rather had him speaking some of the most romantic, poetic language in all of Scripture when he sees his wife and he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, truly this is the one for me. He sees her and he loves her and wants to take care of her. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, God tells Satan in verse 15 that actually his undoing was going to come through the seed, the offspring, the child born of the woman. It was going to be through her offspring that he would experience his greatest defeat. But it's in verse 16 that God tells Eve, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The language implies that the woman wants to exert authority over the man. And that's what we've seen play out in history ever since. The woman wanting to exert authority over the man, but that God has decreed otherwise. God says, no, that leadership, that authority, that belongs to the male. And that plays some role in women's place in the church, in the hierarchy of spiritual leadership. If we looked in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. 
And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so, yes, we could say that Eve's sin played some part in the system that we have today, but there's actually some, especially those that are egalitarian in nature, that would say actually sin is what created the differences between men and women. And once Jesus cleanses you of that sin, the roles are whatever you want them to be. And they would say it only is tied back to sin that we see the difference in those roles. But there's just one problem. I left a clause out of this verse, and that clause says this, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. I say that simply to show you that the created order that God made and called good when it comes to gender roles was there from the very beginning. Before sin ever tainted the world, these roles were set by God, and he said that this was the way that it was supposed to be. To have a biblical worldview of male and female, this has to be the basis of our understanding. We have to start here and that male and female and gender roles is not an accident caused by sin or a standard fabricated by society, but it was the intention of almighty, all-knowing God from the beginning. But the Bible does not stop there when it talks about men and women's roles. In Titus chapter 2, Paul commands Titus to teach the Christians of Crete to live godly lives. He tells him to be involved, directly involved with their lives and the holiness as they try to live the Christian life. But the particulars of that life and the instructions actually differed between the males and the females, even between those that were of older age and those that were of younger age. It's interesting to note that in verse 3, Paul has already said that the old women should display qualities of righteousness, but in addition that they should also teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Imagine stepping into a room full of college students, female college students, though it could be both, at Tennessee Tech, just 20 minutes up the road. And imagine that I stepped in there and said, God wants young women to aim at being self-controlled, pure, kind, and submissive. What do you think they would do? I think they'd skin me alive. I think I would be lucky to get out of that room alive. Are we teaching this to young women? Are we teaching this is what you should aim for and strive for in your life? Is this the picture of success that we paint for them? Now, again, there are exceptions. There are differences between our time and this time. There's things that vary. Not everyone, for instance, is meant to marry. Not everyone will be married and have children. Several of the traits could also apply to the unmarried as well as the married. And no matter what situation a woman finds herself in, her role should be defined by her relationship to Christ and his church, whether she's married or unmarried. And Christ's picture of biblical womanhood is for all women. And that's what should drive us, not a movement that is born the fruit of death and sin. Now, some would argue that the words that are laid out in these verses are culturally specific to Paul's day, and thus they're outdated, right? This is an old-fashioned view of women. We're beyond that now. But I would actually argue the opposite. I would say that the contextual clues in the book of Titus tell me that this was not the norm in the culture of Crete, but rather this was something that had to be taught to the young women to show them how they ought to be. Practicing this was not a granted thing, but it's the thing that God wanted wanted his church to exemplify. Is it a different picture than what we see in our world today? Yes, it it very much is. Is it countercultural in some ways? Yes, it really is. 
But that doesn't change the fact that we stand by the word of God. And if God says this is the picture of what he wants in the lives of women over and against feminism, over against this idea of empowerment, then we know what he says is right and good and true. Knowing the difference between these two pictures is of the utmost importance for the souls of your children. I want to leave you with some actionable things to consider moving forward as we face the world that we live in today, the world of radical feminism, uh, the world of transgenderism, all of these things that want to capture our children's minds and push them towards uh, the social norms of the day, which is all whatever you want to do, whatever you feel, whatever you think is the best, that's what you ought to do. So here are some things to consider as we think about that. First, don't just teach your sons and daughters about the gender roles that happen in this room. Don't just teach them that women can't be preachers, but boys can, or that boys can lead singing publicly, but that women can't. Don't just create this religious world set up for them in their mind. Of course, teach them that, but don't do that and then send them into the secular world of feminism where they're going to learn these other things and be taught this. Build the full worldview of your children on what God has said, and their whole life will reflect his will if you do that. Secondly, every family's situation is different. We are not of this world, but we are in this world, and society today is very different than it has ever been before. And because of that, several families are put in situations where a household needs two working parents to put food on the table. I know that that's a reality for a lot of people. I don't know that that's the reality for every household that has two parents working. I think some people have a breadwinner, and then you have additional income for fun and vacations, but that's neither here nor there. This goes for families with two working parents or even with a mother or father staying at home. Don't outsource the raising of your children. Don't outsource parenting your children because that's our job as parents. And if we leave that job to the world, they are ready and waiting to pounce on them and teach them exactly what they want them to believe. And that means mothers love your children. Learn to love your children. It's not always the easiest thing to do. Build them up because that is the Lord's work. Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Do not pretend that you can abandon your wife with all the parenting responsibilities and still be pleasing to God. That's not possible. You have to be a part. Do not outsource your parenting because their souls are at stake. The souls of our families are at stake. Third, Rejoice in the male and female binary that God has created. We live in a world that teaches children to despise their birth assigned sex, to despise their homes, their families, and every concrete defining feature that the world has always stood on. They, they teach them to hate these things. We, among all people, should be able to rejoice in God's good design of sex, of the family, and of male and female. And that means teaching your sons why it's good to be a man. The world wants to tell them, hey, you should hate yourself for being a man. Don't do that. Teach them why it's good to be a man and to have responsibility and to lead. Mothers, help your daughters see why life as God has defined it for women and for wives and for mothers is better than any illusion of empowerment that the world can offer you because God's way is always the best way. And finally, heed the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. This was read earlier. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. When it comes to the issues of our day, the first question that we always want to jump to with any issue is, is it a sin? 
We want to know, is this thing a sin? Am I sinning if I do it? Or do I have the freedom to do as I please? We are constantly bombarded by decisions when it comes to our lives and our children's lives and with certain actions and lifestyles of the day. And a lot of times we don't have any biblical ground to call these things sin. The Bible doesn't talk about certain things. It doesn't give us direct guidance on each and everything that comes around in the world. Some of these things may be cultural or popular, but they aren't sin in the strict sense. But in our day and time, I believe more and more decisions will not fall into the the dichotomy of sin and not sin. But instead, they will fall into a question of, is this wise or unwise? Not sin, but a question of wisdom. Is it wise or unwise to partake in these things? They may not be a sin now, but what will it condition my children to Is it wise to focus on teaching my daughter to be empowered, that she ought to strive for empowerment? Is it a wise thing to push my children, male and female, into a college academic setting that will do everything in its power to destroy their faith? Is it wise to teach our kids that the most important thing in life is to be successful and get a good job because the rest will work itself out? I've heard that messaging taught in churches. I've heard it spoken by preachers. The most important thing is to be successful and have a good job. Is that really what we want the message to our children to be? Is it wise to tell our children who have been faithfully raised in the church to not get in a hurry to start a family? Don't don't get crazy about starting a family. You've got all the time in the world. When the world's trend right now is perpetual adult childhood, selfishness, and an antagonism towards offspring of any kind. Yet we tell kids, just wait, don't worry. Don't, Don't get in a hurry. Don't rush. Is that the wisest thing that we can do? These are the questions before us. These are the things that we have to ask because the world is knocking at those back doors. It wants our kids. It wants our minds. We have to think differently. We have to think biblically, and we have to walk wisely. So let's stand on God's word. When people come knocking and they want to talk about feminism or empowerment, the roles of women, let's look at what God's word says. Equal, equal in worth and dignity, but separate roles. We all have a part to play, and it's beautiful what God can do when we just do what he wants us to. Don't conform to the world, but bring every thought in captivity for the obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ.